0: Hello, I'm Brittany Wilson.
1: I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to
0: The The Nonprofit Nonprofit
1: Reframe.
0: Together, Nia and I have over 30 years of nonprofit experience. We've worked the program side, the business side, and everything in between.
1: We are reframing the nonprofit experience by challenging the status quo, because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Hey, folks. Nia here. Um, I'm recording this the evening of Thursday, January 7. The episode you are about to hear was recorded before the uh, um, attempted coup on our government here in the United States. So obviously, we do not mention it in the episode. At this point, I don't know that there's much left to say. Um, Obviously, if you've listened to any of our content in the past, you probably have an idea about how Brittany and I feel about the domestic terrorists and what they attempted to do. Um, but our hearts really go out to, to all of you. Um, I know I basically spent Wednesday glued to the TV in absolute disbelief, and then most of today just trying to figure out how to get back to work. Um, because none of this is normal, and we shouldn't treat it as normal. Um, and yet... All of you as nonprofit professionals, your missions are incredibly important, and, and I know it's hard to, to shift back into that. So our hearts are with you. Um, any of you in Washington, D.C., especially, I mean, actually seeing and feeling that, um, I can't imagine what that was like or what it's like to now go back to work. Um, so we are we're just holding the, the nonprofit sector right now. And counting down till January 20th. Um, It's a little surreal to see our country devolve to this state. And at the same time, we've been watching this happen for the last four years. So, cheers to January 20 and enjoy the episode.
0: Welcome back to the Nonprofit Reframe. (laughs) Happy Monday, listeners. Uh,
1: Today is January 5th. I'm coming to you from my home office in Longmont, and Brittany (laughs) is hiding behind a box somewhere not here.
0: I am live from secret location, uh, far, far from the setup I'm used to at home in my home office. So um, I am in my travel trailer, and I am attempting to create... Um, a podcast studio here in the trailer and, um, well, it's pretty bush league. So
1: I think we've mentioned this before. We, uh, we're on zoom when we record so we can actually, you know, watch each other, play off each other, except now I can't.
0: <laughs> I'm no, literally
1: it's... just working at, looking at a box in your eyeballs.
0: That's true. It's very mysterious. <laughs> I will. uh, Well, I won't have to because this will be the last time we do this. I was going to say I'll work on a better setup, but I think there's a lot of potential. It (laughs) um, just takes a little bit of imagination, um, and I'm just thankful that we are able to get the last episode out to all of you and sounding semi decent and not um, as much of a headache for Nia to work on in post as it could have been. Still probably a lot more work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Anyway, uh, this is our first episode that now we have recorded in the new year. So, Brittany, happy new year to you. We've already wished it to our listeners.
0: Yes, happy new year to you. How was
1: your New Year's Eve celebration?
0: Uh, Fairly uneventful. I fell asleep... By 11, woke up just in time for the ball drop, and then um, shepherded my two kids completely melting down because they're up <laughs> way too late for their age to bed. Sounds lovely. Yeah. How about yours?
1: Uh, we were in bed by 9.30. It was great.
0: Nice. <laughs> Do you, when you do that, do you have a mock ball drop before you go to bed?
1: At 10 o'clock, as we were both falling asleep, we were like, oh, it's midnight in the Eastern time zone. Happy new year. And then we rolled over and both fell asleep.
0: Nice. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when my kids were even younger, we sometimes like on Netflix, they have these mock ball drops Mm. and, you know, kids don't didn't know how to read a clock so they didn't know what time it was so we would do it at like eight o'clock or oh, seven o'clock lovely. but now they're just old enough to recognize that it's not midnight but still really too young to be able to make it past midnight ah uh, yes double bind
1: situation a,
0: it's a gamble it's a gamble that we make every year and pay for for at least a day afterwards <laughs>
1: So we are also now back to work. How's your uh, work situation on the road?
0: Again, I think there's a lot of potential, but working (laughs) (laughs) – I think there's a way to do it and master it and do it well. I have not figured it out yet. So doing the best we can. Where we are, we have really spotty internet – and that has proven to be very difficult. And tomorrow is the first day that the kids go back to school virtually. And it, it's just going to be a crapshoot whether or not they're both going to be able to connect to their video classrooms at the same time um, with the Wi Fi we're using. So just take the recreational vehicle to a Starbucks pa- parking lot. I was thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, but you know what, in all honesty, um, my husband and I have been talking about this a lot, is it has definitely given me some food for thought about what's that what that is like for families and for people who do not have access to reliable high-end internet mm-hmm. service
1: mm-hmm. and just
0: how much harder everything is. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something that we take for granted on a daily basis when we're at home, except for that one time that the squirrel chewed <laughs> through our DSL line and we didn't have it for a couple hours. Um, but you just, you gosh, it's so apparent how much we rely on consistent like high-speed internet. And when you don't have it, you're like, I, how, I can't do anything. I can't do yeah. it. I can't even, I can't pay my bills. I can't do anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point.
0: So maybe it's giving us a, a new perspective for 2021. Appreciation <laughs> too. So today starts our series, right? Our donor cycle series. That it does. So we're going to spend one episode uh, talking about each uh, part of the donor cycle.
1: Yes. And since this was your idea, would would you give us a quick overview of what the donor cycle is, why it's oh important?
0: My, oh my gosh, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so the donor cycle is really how you go from first identifying who would be um, a prospective donor to... Um, cultivating that donor, so getting to know them, um, to soliciting for a gift, um, and then acknowledging that gift, showing the appreciation for that gift, and then ultimately uh, stewarding that donor so they continue to stay engaged and um, continue to be a loyal supporter of your organization.
1: And it is truly a cycle. I mean, ideally, after that stewardship, you're right back into the identification because it's not just donors outside of your organization. It's also, you know, identifying your current donors for specific campaigns, appeals, et cetera, um, that you would want to continue to integrate them in.
0: So true. I mean, I think that that's such a great point that's often overlooked. Um, I can't tell you how many different people I've talked to, whether they were development directors or executive directors who just wanted to, I don't know, banter a little bit about fundraising and things that they could do. And they were constantly focused on seeking new people and missing out on the opportunities that they already had in their current donor pool that were maybe staying consistent donors and giving, I don't know, $25 a year, but had the potential to be giving a a lot higher level and engaged in a lot higher level. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think why we talk about the donor cycle um, is because so often people think fundraising is solicitation. You know, when especially smaller organizations or board members are thinking about fundraising, they're so focused on the solicitation piece. And that's when we end up with really transactional relationships with donors. If we want it to be much more of a partnership, if we want to retain donors year after year, it has to be this continual cycle. Um, And we know nonprofits generally still um, are not great at retaining donors. Um, Nationally, the average is still around 45% retention, which means one out of every two donors you get each year never gives again. So um, I think we've got a lot of work to do in terms of stewardship. And I think this is a great time to be talking about it because um, at least initial data is showing a ton of new donors coming into organizations. Um, I'm certainly seeing that anecdotally with my clients as well. And so the big question is how do you keep them? And it's about this cycle.
0: Yeah, that's great. So the first stage in that donor cycle is what we had mentioned before identification. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this today about identifying donors and how it's so easy to fall in the trap of just kind of uh, qualifying or stereotyping people out the gate Mm -hmm. and, and really focusing on just, do they have capacity? Yeah. So I'm interested, Nia, in hearing from you, when you're looking at identifying donors, what are the points on your checklist that you're trying to hit?
1: Well, it's all about what we're identifying them for, right? Like, so... I've got a client who wants to develop a monthly giving program. We're going to look at their $100 donors to see if we can convert them to $10 a month donors, and therefore they're giving 120 annually, right? So it really is thinking about what is your goal with this specific campaign or appeal and then figuring out how to identify the appropriate donors, whether they're existing donors or the prospective new donors that go into this. You know, when we're working with boards, um, that's where you're doing a lot of um, – identifying new donors, hopefully, having board members look into their networks, look at their friends and family. Um I am a big believer that we want donors of all shapes and sizes. Um so I mm-hmm. especially when I'm working with boards, I I'm not really focused on the capacity piece, uh, because I want all board members to be able to be successful in fundraising, which means they're getting their neighbor down the street to give twenty bucks. That's amazing. That means that they've gotten somebody to step up for this organization. They've provide a, a compelling reason to give. So um, the capacity thing isn't as important. Um, but of course, that's different for different kinds of campaigns. If we're talking a capital campaign, there there has to be a capacity consideration up front because um, otherwise you're never going to hit those lead gifts and therefore the overall campaign goals.
0: Yeah, those are such great points. I know that I speak a lot when I'm talking to people about fundraising, whether it's board members or colleagues of mine. About, you know, trying to find people who have a heart for your mission. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's true. I mean, I absolutely think that's true. Um, But I also think that sometimes people are not – what am I trying to say? That maybe they don't even know what they don't know, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you ask somebody, well, what kind of organizations do you give to? And they're like, well, I give to animal organizations. Okay, that's great. They have a heart for that. But maybe even – just by telling them a few stories from the clients you serve and the work that you do. I mean, I remember when I worked with homeless youth, um, particularly in the area where the organization was, people were astounded to hear that that was even an issue. Like Mm -hmm. they didn't even think that was a problem where they lived, you know? And so I do think that educational component is so key in identifying new donors. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, and it, you know, if I'm working with a client to develop a fundraising program, I'm going to start with who's who's already in your circles of influence. That could be because they're volunteering with you, they could be donors already, or they could have some sort of interaction with your programming. Those are the folks we always want to start with. Um, and I think about this organization I was involved with in high school and college, and um, my very first nonprofit job actually was with this organization, and um, They've always really struggled with the fundraising and then a few years back um, somebody I was connected to on Facebook who now sits on their board put out a little peer fundraising thing and it was such an easy ask for me like this organization shaped so much of my life and career absolutely I would give to them and they've never asked me for money again.
0: Interesting
1: and it's such an interesting one because I you know I'm essentially an alumni of this this program and I people like me, would be such a great donor base for them if they would figure out how to tap into that which is not always easy especially if you're working with you know uh, now adults who had been involved as children but yeah you always got to start with who's connected
0: Yeah yeah and so that's a lot of the um, exercises that we do when we're working with people is just thinking about like you said those circles of influence um, and I think that we get so busy in our lives that we uh, dismiss or um, discount the different circles of influence that we're actually a part of because it's just such a part of our daily life. Mm -hmm. And it's really kind of powerful when you sit down and you start looking at it and you start saying, oh, well, yeah, okay. I'm, you know, a part of this club or I'm a part of this church community or I'm part of this school community or I'm part of this parent community. And when you start adding it all up along with maybe just like your friends or alumni, Uh, circles or um, things to do with your kids, you realize that, wow, we really do have a lot of connecting points in our communities and beyond our own communities um, with different people. And so then I really do think it's about how you're sharing, which we talk about a lot too, how you're sharing the work that you're doing and I've worked with some places where they were having a hard time, quote-unquote, identifying donors. But really the issue was that when speaking to potential donors, it was unclear really what the organization was doing. Mm -hmm. And so that got confusing for people. And I think that there probably were opportunities to connect with um, potential supporters. But they just – you have such a small window – to relay that message. And if it's kind of muddy about what it is that you're doing and, and what they're supporting, you can lose that opportunity very quickly.
1: Mm-hmm, For sure. Have you ever gotten it really wrong? Like started the identification process and just been totally
0: off? That's a great question. I mean, yes, I'm sure I have a million times. Um, I'm hard pressed to think of one in particular right now, but do you have one that could maybe of course. then help spark? Okay, good. Cause then maybe that'll spark my memory on something.
1: Oh, I have so many.
0: God. <laughs> this is, Yeah. Uh, I mean, it I happens think, all the time. I think this is
1: a great message to, especially all of our, um, newer fundraisers out there. Um, just to know we all did this. Uh, we all made these mistakes and now we are, we are learning from them. So, um,
0: And sometimes we still make them. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So um, I was a baby fundraiser. I didn't even realize I was a fundraiser really at the time. And um, (laughs) god damn. I did the thing that we talk about all the time where I was like, our mission is so important. Every business in town should be supporting us.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Right.
1: And uh, got a list of those businesses, (laughs) put together an appeal, and sent it out. Um, and there were problems with that solicitation that we'll talk about in a few episodes. I'm going to save that part of the story because this is just a whole bunch of Nia failures. Uh, guess how much money we made from that, uh, based on the highly cultivated list that I identified. $2,000. Zero. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but I, think that's like one of the traps we all get into, We are all so passionate about our organizations, our causes, and there is this sense of like, oh my gosh, everybody should know about this. Everybody should be just as enraged or engaged or stepping up. And the fact of the matter is, it just
0: doesn't work that way. (laughs) Yeah, that's hard. That's really hard. So what did you do? You took these flyers. Did you send them? Did you do a mailing? We had a mailing, yeah. Oh, we did that too. Absolutely absolutely. Well, that's the thing. They probably get 30 of those a month. hmm Here's another one.
1: please. Uh, this was less me and more something I helped clean up. So a um, client of mine, they, they got a ton of grant funding, uh, foundation funding. Um, and I, by a ton, I mean like in proportion to the rest of their revenue. Very impressive. Um, and so they had a development director, but really 75% of her job was grant writing because they had no other development staff. And so they had me come in and just do a bit of an analysis, and uh, she sent me her grant list. And some of the groups on there she was applying to were so far flung. And I realized after, you know, going through the list and talking to her, she had just gone to the grants guide. Um, for those of you outside the state of Colorado, we have a Colorado grants guide. It's run by a local organization. They update it. It's a little database, but, you know, we all have some something like that. And she had gone and added every single organization that gave to their area of focus, including all the ones that just said they would give to any nonprofit. So she was doing probably triple the grant applications as to what she was actually getting in. I mean, the amount of time wasted because these companies, these organizations, these foundations had no connection to this group. Had really no tie-in. But, you know, there was that one that came through. And so then that of justifies course. the rest of it.
0: Of course. Well, I mean, that reminds me of, I mean, <laughs> all the time that we spend um, at these events, like community events where we have tables. <laughs> And that's the goal, right? The goal is trying to identify, meet and identify people in the community who could become engaged, maybe become a volunteer, and hopefully become a donor. But you're spending hours and hours and hours, whether it's like um, at a volunteer fair, at um, a church. I've spent hours at churches, at a company, I mean, I think I've told that story before, but gosh, being at these like corporate events where they invite all these nonprofits in and they have a, you are like, oh, y'all the booth and you'll be able to talk to all of our employees about what you do and maybe you'll get some volunteers or something. No fucking way. Like they are there to get their free chili for the chili cook-off and then like they're out. They're not talking to any of us. So we're just sitting there like dumbasses, like not... Having anybody to talk to. I mean, it, it really, truly, <laughs> I'm going to get vulnerable. It, like, takes me back to being in, like, sixth grade or something. And you're like, nobody's going to talk to me. Nobody wants to talk to me. And you're just kind of, like, sitting there awkwardly. Or at um, farmer's markets. <laughs> or at, um, like, these big festivals. Brittany, did you not get
1: picked for the kickball team as a child? I
0: think that's true. There is. There's something that just comes, and I'm like, what am I doing here? It feels like a popularity contest of which I'm not winning, and I'd rather just not participate. I always wonder about this, and this is a good question. Any of our listeners
1: out there who aren't in the sector, so your board members, somehow you stumbled upon this, I don't know why, but you, you don't work in, the, in nonprofits. If that is you, I want I really need the answer to this question. Have you ever gone to one of those, those fairs, markets, whatever, where there's been nonprofits and found a true connection to an organization that you continue to be involved with?
0: Oh, yes, I would love to know that. I
1: mean, I can think of a few times where, do you think it happens? I mean, I've gotten like a good volunteer out of something like that, but it's – I mean, it's so few and far between. Uh, the ROI is definitely not there. And it's never happened for me personally, but I, I know that I've got a different perspective because i am I'm in the sector and I know these organizations already.
0: But you talked about it. You'll have like the one unicorn – Who comes in and maybe they do become a donor. Maybe they even become a major donor. And now they are the example of why we're doing this for years and years (laughs) and years on end. Because remember...
1: They become the justification for the Saturday mornings of lugging the bins and bins of shit to the farmer's market.
0: I know. It's so true. And it's just like, well, remember so-and-so? You know, we met them at a farmer's market. And you're like, "God,
1: damn it. Oh, my God. I don't – this – I don't know how this memory has been so suppressed, but it just came to me like Share right it. Now. Get it out. <laughs> okay. So I worked for this organization. We um, were very volunteer-driven, very volunteer-powered, um, and so always looking for committed community members. And <laughs> – I don't know if it was my idea or somebody else's. I don't want to take credit for this or blame for this. Or
0: potentially. Blame. <laughs> I don't want to take the credit or the blame.
1: But we were like, okay, what, what is our key volunteer demographic? And obviously, we did not have a diversity lens at this point. It, but it was just like, who are our volunteers? And it was older women with time. And so we're like, well, where do older women with time go? They go to fucking craft fairs, and so <laughs> we got shut um, up. We got all of these. I
0: love a good craft fair, by the way. Oh,
1: me too. They're one of my favorite things. Um, we got oh all my this God, that's so Midwest. The stuff donated, like scarves and hats and little sock snowmen, <laughs> so we could have a booth at these craft fairs and try to recruit volunteers
0: and donors. <laughs> so you were selling other people's goods and then the money, the profits were going to your nonprofit. I mean, yeah, technically, but the profits, I'm going to put in quotes.
1: <laughs> right. Didn't right. didn't even cover our booth fee probably.
0: <laughs> and so how many um donors or volunteers did you identify and then I'm going to say 0.
1: I'm I I'm going to say 0. <laughs> I mean again like not the environment if you're there for a craft fair you're you're shopping with your buddies you're looking for the cute stuff you're not like how can I find a meaningful volunteer role while I'm here in this gymnasium today yeah no exactly
0: yes people are going to a craft share craft fair to buy crafts not to volunteer that I mean that is where though When you're at these businesses for their chili cook-offs and you have your random table there, I mean, I would love to see what the internal marketing is Mm. because what are they expecting when they show up? Are they expecting 30 doe-eyed, wide-eyed nonprofit professionals (laughs) staring them down as they choose which chili they're going to eat? I don't know. It's probably. Are they like, who
1: are these people? A flyer with like a huge pot of chili. And then there's this tiny asterisk. And in like 8.5 at the bottom, it says, you'll have to walk through a gauntlet of nonprofit professionals to get to your chili.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But meanwhile, we've been told it is specifically a volunteer fair. These are key
1: prospects. They have already been identified for us. what a lie. And
0: you have 500 potential employees, but like only 75 come through the door. And of that, only three actually talk to at least one person at a nonprofit table.
1: And they're probably all Midwestern and they just feel really guilty.
0: Oh, my God. You just – that is so true. (laughs) Oh, yes. I'm always that
1: person who stops at the table like at the front of the grocery store That has the nonprofit at it just because I feel like they're so lonesome and everybody's brushed past them. And so I always stop and talk, even if I have zero intention of giving anything to them.
0: (laughs) I was just going to say the same thing, but that goes for anything. I mean, that's like a nonprofit or that's like the people giving free samples. Like I talk to them. I mean, they get more traffic because people are just hungry. But anybody that's like sitting working a table, I try to say hi to. Um, while my husband like ducks and runs and it's just like,
1: that's my husband too. He's like, here's the keys. I'm leaving.
0: (laughs) I'll see you in the car. Do not talk forever. (laughs) Okay. I got to tell this story really quickly. This is such, it's a Midwest thing really quickly. I'm sorry, listeners, but it's a family story. So We went into a restaurant and my brother was there yesterday and it's a restaurant that is from Ohio, but opened up a location near us. And so we were all excited because we're all from Ohio and we wanted to eat this food that we haven't had in a long time because neither of us have lived in Ohio for a long time. And, um, my niece and nephew are there. And as we walk in, um, my brother says to them, um, well, you know, the, the oh, no, is as we were leaving, and the lady at the front desk is like, how was it? It was a pizza joint, and so we just got pizza. And my brother was like, well, you know, we're from Columbus. <laughs> and we grew up on this pizza. And we're just really excited to see you down here. And my niece looks at me, and she's like, not again. <laughs> and she's like does this every time we come in here and i just started laughing uncontrollably because i do the same thing with another restaurant that's from ohio and every that's a chain that's all over the country and every time we go in it i have to tell the people there that i used to work there at like one of the originals in ohio and gabriel's like that was 25 years ago (laughs) you were 18 they don't care Oh, my God. It's such a Midwest thing.
1: My dad does that, too. Uh, There's a a Mexican restaurant here in Longmont, Benny's Tacos. Highly recommend. Uh Anybody needs a good taco place. And we went pretty soon after they opened uh, with my dad in town. And, of course, he ends up, like, talking to Benny. He has this whole conversation. And so now not only do we go every time he's in town, but he regularly asks for an update. As if, like, I'm on the phone with Benny every week, like, how the taco's (laughs) going. But then he will, every time we go, he will give them an update, too, of, like, how he was here three years ago, and it's so great to see them now. Like, they
0: remember him.
1: They don't remember.
0: They don't remember, Dad.
1: They don't remember you. (laughs)
0: He's like, I've been doing good for the last three years. These are changes that have happened in my family. And they're like, who the hell are you? Are you buying tacos or not? But his interest, I mean, that's the thing about us Midwesterners. I mean, our interest is genuine.
1: Oh, it's I mean, so genuine and honest. We're
0: not bullshitting.
1: He really wants to know about the taco fortune that they've been making. <laughs>
0: Oh, we could do a whole episode on just um, Midwestern customs. Like the Midwest goodbye is hysterical, how it takes 30 minutes. Um, But at least you married a fellow Midwesterner, so he can appreciate it and maybe has some of the same habits where my husband's like, what are you doing? This is ridiculous.
1: Like the time we were served basically raw steak and we both just sat there and nibbled at the edges. (laughs) Nobody said anything. Not a damn thing. Uh-uh. The waitress paid comes by it. and
0: we're like, it's wonderful. Paid, <laughs> paid for it. Tipped 20%. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. We could go on and on. We'll digress. Let's go back to identification of donors.
1: So I want to bring you back to also the initial idea for this series was the tie-in to dating.
0: Oh, this is going to, like, take it all full circle.
1: Yes. So identification of donors, we decided, is like swiping right.
0: (laughs) It really is. I'm so glad you know more about that than I do, because I would have said, I don't know which way to go. I don't know if it's swiping left or right. I actually don't know. I hope that's right.
1: Oh. I've been married for 12 years. How would I know?
0: (laughs) I, but you're, like, hip with, you know, what the kids are doing. Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, yes. Yeah, so this, I mean, we, this metaphor is going to progress throughout as we talk about the different stages of the donor cycle. But it really is, like, what well, we talk about all the time. It's building relationship, right? Right. And so um, this is where you're scrolling through. And you're trying to see who's going to be a good match.
1: Well, and ideally, if we're doing identification right, both sides are swiping right.
0: Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're so proud of ourselves.
1: And Brittany clearly forgot that part of this series.
0: (laughs) I did. I did. (laughs) So what are our takeaways? Any last bits of advice around identification? We talked about recognizing it doesn't always have to be identifying uh, potential donors from a new pool. It's also including identifying donors within your current pool.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, we talk- oh, go
1: ahead. I think it's also important to really identify what your goals are that will help you identify yeah. who the appropriate donors are that you're trying to attract to this, this specific campaign you're working on. Um, and I think it's okay. One of the takeaways is you're going to get it wrong. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. really wrong. You might spend thousands of dollars on a mailing that uh, elicits nothing. But you're going mean, to get it I mean, how wrong.
0: many of us have done that with our mailing list when we've bought mailing lists? Oh my
1: gosh, right? Oof, buying mailing lists. That's a whole nother identification.
0: Right. And at least now they have some capability to be able to target your audience. hmm You know, like, oh, we only want to send it to women who are between the ages of 25 and 45 who have this income and no kids or whatever that is. So you do have some way of being strategic, but even then, it's a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. And it used to be, like, a much wider swath that you just kind of, like, threw the fishing net out see if it caught anything. Yeah, yeah. Of which you didn't, and then you paid a lot of money (laughs) for it. (laughs) But
1: when you got those two responses, it justified it to your board.
0: Yeah, and I think that, too, um, a takeaway is recognizing when it, for your organization— is worth the time and energy and money spent. mm mm-hmm. um, And that this is yet another part of fundraising that your don't, or your board members, excuse me, can participate in that does not involve asking their friends for money. Yes. Yet. Yet. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which brings us to next week's topic, Brittany. What's the next round on the cycle?
0: Cultivation. So now you've identified someone who is a potential prospect um, that you think they're going to jive with what you're doing at your organization and vice versa. And now how do you build that relationship and get them involved?
1: All right, folks. So stay tuned. We have four more episodes on the donor cycle coming your way uh, make sure you are subscribed. You can find us everywhere you get podcasts, um, and make sure you're also following us on social media. Uh, this is probably one of the more actual practical <laughs> series we've done. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So send to your fundraising friends. Maybe they'll get something out of it, too.
0: And send us your stories, because, of course, we love to hear about all of them, the successes and the fails. It gives us... Um, You know, information to share with our listeners um, and also potentially stuff to laugh at along with you. But I would be remiss if I did not say the most philanthropic time of year has come to a close. And so now is when nonprofits still need your support. They've just had their big end-of-year giving, and now they're going to get into their January, February doldrums. Um, they're looking at their cash flow, making sure they can make it through to their next big event or their next big mailing. Help them out. Be a sustainable donor. Please give to your local nonprofits and give generously. And maybe give monthly. There you go.
1: (laughs) Thanks, everybody. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com and Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.